Hi there, and a very warm welcome to Season 3, Episode 38 of People Soup. It's Ross McIntosh here. P-Supers, thanks for tuning in. This week it's part one of my chat with psychologist, anxiety specialist and author, Dr. Eric Goodman. At People's Soup, we share evidence-based behavioural science in a way that's practical, accessible and fun to nourish your mind, to flourish at work. And before I go on, don't pretend you haven't noticed that we've got some new introductory music, which I love, and is courtesy of a very talented chap called Alex Engelberg in Seattle. So back to the matter at hand. In this clip, Eric talks about the development of a compassionate mindset. Yeah, we, yeah, we, you know, we have these misconceptions that that somehow if we don't beat ourselves up, if we don't punish ourselves for making a mistake, that we're somehow not going to improve. And that's our our life experiences does not bear that out. And and there's research that doesn't bear that out. So when you look at uh, teaching styles, where you have a teacher who if a student you know talks in class or or causes some some issues if the teacher you know calls them out and humiliates them and writes their name and read up on the board compare that to the teacher that catches the students when they're in a good moment and they lavish that praise and they put their name up in green up on the board and say look how well this person's doing guess which one gets a better outcome it's the compassion that gets the better outcome. So, you know, I, I'm as far from kind of a, a I think, a hippy-dippy sort of mentality. For me, it's just pragmatic. It's that we're going to get the best out of ourselves. We're going to get the best out of other people. And we're going to suffer less in life if we can foster a compassionate mindset versus jumping on the bandwagon with harsh, critical, internal tormenting. We cover loads more in our chat, including how he developed his career in psychology after the experience of an unfulfilling management role. He shares the evolution of his approach to his specialism. His approach combines cognitive behavioural therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, exposure therapy and compassion-focused therapy. We also have a fascinating chat about his use of virtual reality. The conversation all leads up to a glimpse of his book, Your Anxiety Beast and You, A Compassionate Guide to Living in an Increasingly Anxious World, which we'll delve into more in part two of the interview. Right, let's have a quick look at news and reviews. Reviews are in for our recent episodes. Fiona Healy O'Neill commented on the episode where students reflected on the ACBS UK and ROI conference. Fiona said, brilliant to listen to these students reflecting on their first experience of attending an ACBS conference. A wonderful reminder of the emotional uniqueness of attending a CBS event, virtually as well as in person, and its capacity to impact personally and professionally. And Nick Hooper commented on the ACT Diary 2020 Reflections episode. He said, dear me, what an honour, Ross, a gorgeous episode of the People Soup podcast. I was mesmerized by your vulnerability and by how you live by the things that you teach. Please do listen to this, people. Not for the mention of the diary, but to hear the beauty of this human being. Blimey. Thank you so much, Nick. 
And thank you, Fiona, too. And to everyone who listened, shared, reviewed and rated. And the brilliant ACT Diary for 2021 is available now. And the link is in the show notes. Folks, in other news, here at People Soup Towers, where good friends and fanboys and girls of the Psychologists of the Clock podcast. And they are kicking off the new year in style. They are hosting an online virtual summit on January the 29th and 30th, 2021. The summit will offer wisdom from world-renowned experts on how to adapt and survive in our challenging times. And you'll find the link to register again in the show notes for this episode. If you do enjoy the podcast, I'd love it if you would subscribe, rate and review it. Whatever platform you're on, it helps us amplify our voice and reach more people with stuff that could be useful. If there's an episode you particularly like, you can also drop some change into my virtual tip jar over at ko-fi.com slash peoplesoup. For now, get a brew on and have a listen to part one of my conversation with Dr. Eric Goodman. Dr. Eric Goodman, a very, very warm welcome to People Soup. I'm delighted to have you here. I'm so happy to be here, Ross. Uh, thank you. And happy Thanksgiving weekend. Oh, yes, yes. This has uh, actually been wonderful. This is the first time off I've had of, of work since the pandemic started. I've been going pretty much nonstop. So I've been able to take four days completely off, which has just been wonderful. Well, you say four days completely off, but you've been very kind and generous enough to join me for this chat. Well, this is fun. I like to, I like to talk about these concepts. Oh, brilliant. Well, I'm honored that you have, so thank you very much. Now, Eric, you may be familiar. I've got a research department which is variable in its accuracy about what it finds out about people. So I'd just like to run through a few things, and then I'll invite you to tell us a bit more about yourself. Okay. So my department says you are a licensed psychologist and you specialize in the treatment of anxiety disorders and obsessive compulsive disorders. And you're in private practice in the Coastal Center for Anxiety Treatment in San Luis Obispo, California, United States of America. Yeah, all true. I've been working exclusively with anxiety disorders and OCD for Oh, about 20 years or so at this point, yeah. Wow, thank you. And I would say to the P-Supers out there, I'll put a link to the Coastal Center for Anxiety Treatment because it's a great source of information and resources that you'll probably want to check out. So, I also hear that you sometimes lecture at the Cal Poly in the Psychology Graduate Program. Yeah, typically once a year I'll teach a course on um, anxiety disorders and OCD treatment for the master's degree students. This is the first time I've ever taught it virtually, which has been a unique experience. I can't say that I, I prefer it. I really miss being with the students and being able to kind of be up and moving around the campus doing exercises and, and activities and it's very different to record a lecture and then and then meet on a Zoom discussion. But, you know, I think like all of us, we're all just making the best of the situation. Yeah, I did my first virtual lecture on Friday, just past, and I was fortunate enough I was doing it alongside my colleague, Paul Flaxman. And mm. it wasn't pre-recorded, so it was all live. And it was okay. We got... Actually, we've got a great level of interaction from the students, so I can't really complain. 
we had a whole host of questions popping up all the time in the chat. So it was like, whoa. That's wonderful. I wonder if because it's a large group, people feel more comfortable to kind of sprinkle in those those chat questions. I know for me, I had 13 students and there's it's, a, it's an interesting number. If it was one or two students, there'd be a lot of back and forth. But with a group like that, nobody wants to jump in to to volunteer to ask a question to discuss and so i find myself needing to just call on people at random which is not something i normally like to do because you're really putting someone on the spot and i'm i'm aware that it's generating a lot of discomfort but the format doesn't really allow for for more of a free flow give and take mm-hmm. So interesting, isn't it? The different type of behavior that, that yeah. happens in face-to-face rather than online. Because I've found that people in general are, are kind of prepared to be more vulnerable when they're sitting on, in front of a computer screen. They will share more stuff than they might do in a face-to-face environment. I've certainly found that to be the case with my individual clients that I'm, I'm doing 100% telehealth because of the pandemic. And some of them that I knew prior to the pandemic, I've noticed they, in the comfort of their own homes, their own rooms, some of the adolescent clients have felt a lot more comfortable opening up in a, in a way that they didn't face-to-face. Mm. So, yeah, I do think that there, there are certainly, there are advantages in there. Great. Okay, I have a bit more from my research department who say you did your PhD at Northeastern University in Boston. Mm-hmm. And your treatment approaches blend uh, cognitive behavioral therapy with an emphasis on exposure with response prevention or ERP, as well as mindfulness, acceptance and compassion based strategies. Yeah, that's accurate. Originally, I was trained kind of in old school CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. And that's how I practiced for a number of years until I, I got introduced to ACT fairly early. I got introduced to ACT. I'm not sure how long you, you've, you've been into the ACT community, but I got involved with it back when CBT hated ACT. ACT was kind of the new kid on the block and there was a lot of tension and it was challenging because I loved both approaches so much and it's really only been in the last five, ten years to where ACT and CBT have have blended together nicely and and I think suspect most people that practice CBT are now blending at least elements of ACT into the work that they do. And then about, oh, five years ago, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Dr. Paul Gilbert. Yes, indeed. In the UK. And I went to a, it was fortunate to go to a training. It was kind of an intensive, I think it was a, it was a three or four day intensive training with him and I didn't know who he was. I didn't know anything about compassion focused therapy other than I've always liked this idea of of compassion as a clinical tool. And his work just was life-changing to really begin to understand the human condition on a deeper level and just how important compassion is to, to humanity. When we are kind to ourselves and we're kind to others, 
it activates part of who we are. I think probably the, the best, most kind and gentle and soothing parts of who we are. And so life is just far easier to, to get through when we're nice to ourselves and when we're compassionate with even people who we profoundly disagree with. So I, I, I found that personally and professionally just a, a game changer. And then ultimately with my writing, I particularly with this the second book, I as much as I love act, there's a lot of metaphors in there that kind of demonize emotions. You know, kind of demons on the boat and tug of war with a monster and things like that. And the way I have been using ACT for, you know, about uh, three, four years has been to infuse all of those traditional ACT metaphors from a compassionate standpoint. And so compassionate diffusion, compassionate acceptance. And my clients uh, have really responded so well to that that that's, that's how I, 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 I hope to continue to conceptualize my clinical work. It's so great to hear you just take us through a bit of your journey with ACT and, and CBT and compassion because compassion had been on my list for quite a while. I must get round to exploring compassion-focused therapy and Paul Gilbert's work and others. And I kind of never really had made it to that part of my list. Mm -hmm. And then... The pandemic hit and I thought this would probably a good, be a good time Macintosh to crack on with that compassion stuff and I've been immersing myself quite a bit and oh, wonderful. finding it quite revelatory and even started at having a go at taking the message to some of the organizations I work with with varying degrees of success on the reception but I will keep going. Well there's there's some misconceptions about compassion. And so a lot of people think that if you're being self-compassionate, you're being weak, you're being somewhat, you know, hippy-dippy sort of thing. And the reality is compassion is about getting the best out of you. And so if you think about people in your life, maybe when you were younger teachers or if you did sports coaches, and if you think about if you've ever had a really bad teacher or a bad coach that would yell at you and demoralize you and what that does to your morale and your motivation and does that really make you want to give it all you got? Does it really get the best for you? And then when you think about a teacher or a mentor or a coach that was compassionate, that if you made a mistake, they were on your side. They were there to support you. They wanted you know, what was best for you. So it wasn't a matter of punishing you. It was a matter of supporting you. And it doesn't mean letting you off the hook, right? It doesn't mean, you know, you don't have to show up for practices because you're, you know, you're not feeling like it. But it's, it's done in a, in a warm, encouraging, kind way. And what most people will say is, when I've had a teacher or a coach like that, I've wanted to do, move heaven and earth to do my best because uh, I, you know, of how they're treating me. 
And so I think for corporations being able to understand that having a compassionate stance, it's not weakness. It's about getting the best out of people. It's about bringing out their best self. And, you know, compassion is takes a lot of courage. So, you know, doing things that you're uncomfortable with, if you demoralize yourself through harsh uh, self-criticism, you're likely not going to be able to break out of your comfort zones and do things that really stretch you. But if you build yourself up with compassion to where if you're willing to make mistakes and if you make a mistake, instead of punishing yourself, you kind of build yourself up. That gives you the courage to go out and do things that you never thought you could do. Mm, wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much, Eric. I'd love to have... Well, I can do that because I'm recording it. I'd love to have that on a loop. That bit where you just started talking about mm. the, the, the difference between two coaches. And I'd just love to play that into organizations every morning. Absolutely. Yeah, we, yeah we, you know, we have these misconceptions that, that somehow if we don't beat ourselves up, if we don't punish ourselves for making a mistake, that we're somehow not going to improve. And that's our, our life experiences does not bear that out. And, and there's research that doesn't bear that out. So when you look at uh, teaching styles where you have a teacher who, if a student, you know, talks in class or, or causes some, some issues, if the teacher, you know, calls them out and humiliates them and writes their name and read up on the board, compare that to the teacher that catches the student's when they're in a good moment and they lavish that praise and they put their name up in green up on the board and say, look how well this person's doing. Guess which one gets a better outcome? It's the compassion that gets the better outcome. So, you know, I, I'm as far from kind of a, a I think a hippy dippy sort of mentality. For me, it's just pragmatic. It's that we're going to get the best out of ourselves. We're going to get the best out of other people. And we're going to suffer less in life if we can foster a compassionate mindset versus jumping on the bandwagon with, with harsh, critical, internal tormenting. Absolutely. Amen to that. My research department says you've written two books. One yes. called Social Courage, Coping and Thriving with the Reality of Social Anxiety. And the one that I'd like to focus on today, you've already mentioned, Your Anxiety, Beast and You, A Compassionate Guide to Living in an Increasingly Anxious World. Which, as I've said, I've just finished reading this week, and I absolutely loved it. We're going to come back and talk about it a bit more in just a moment. But just to give a shout-out to your friend and mine, Louise Gardner as well. I loved her illustrations in the book. Great. Mm -hmm. There's something that really struck me on your website. You said in treating anxiety disorders, you believe that working collaboratively with clients is the key for therapeutic success. And I think that's quite what might seem on the surface, a really simple statement. But I think it, I agree, it is so fundamental to achieving change and making a difference. Well, for, from an act standpoint, we're working to increase people's willingness to be open to their inner experiences as, as they show up. So if somebody's feeling anxious, 
teaching a class or giving a speech, we want people to be open to that, to be willing to have that experience show up because it's when they demonize that experience is that's when the suffering really kicks in and their experience of the discomfort and, and the anxiety goes through the roof. And we cannot make somebody increase their willingness to be with an experience. That has to, it has to be something that makes sense to someone to do it. We need to be able to help people understand why that's important. And so if it's not a collaboration, if we're trying to tell people, well, you know, just go and give that talk, just go and, and, and take that class, and we're not helping them to be able to be open to the experience as it comes up, then there's a lot of suffering that's going to happen needlessly. So the collaboration is to really educate the clients or the employees or whoever you're, you're working with and help them to understand these concepts so that it can become part of them and not just something that we're telling them they should do. So powerful and so important that both people doing therapy or coaching and the clients understand that, that this is a collaboration. Now, a couple of other things and then we'll dive in. So it says here you're a chap that's at the cutting edge of technology. And in, I think in non-pandemic times, you offer virtual reality experiences as part of treatment plans where you can create heights, small spaces, elevators, social interactions, airplanes, etc. And it just struck me, that was such an amazing use of technology, blending it with therapy. It just fills me with joy to read that. Yeah, it's, it's a wonderful technology. And, you know, this is, this is where words don't do it justice. If you have not tried a uh, kind of a higher caliber virtual reality system, if you haven't tried it, the technology is something that feels like it shouldn't exist for about another, you know, 100 years. The sense of really feeling like you're somewhere else is, is very intense with the technologies that they have out now. And so it's a wonderful technology to use. And I'm not somebody who's ever been particularly tech savvy. You know, I don't know if you remember the old uh, VHS uh, recorders back in the day. I was never someone that was able to figure out how to program those things. I've never, I've never been a tech savvy person, but I was visiting a, a brother uh, of mine in, in Arizona, and we were walking through a mall and there was a, a demonstration of this kind of this higher end virtual reality technology. And just kind of for, for a laugh, we went in and we tried it out and I put it on and, and I, it felt like I was standing on the edge of this uh, mountainside. And I'm looking down and my heart's starting to, to pound. And I say, all right, well, I can feel the floor with my feet. I'm in the store. I know this isn't real. I'm going to step off the edge and see what happens. I couldn't get myself to step off the edge. No matter how hard I tried, my brain just rebelled and said, no, you're going to die if you do that. And I realized this is just fantastic fantastic for exposure therapies 
to be able to generate that level of, uh, of anxiety and, and be able to activate those, those phobic systems in an office without having to go actually take a client up a mountain or up a skyscraper or, you know, a uh, hundred feet underwater, that's, that's uh, really a phenomenal technology. And so I've been using it, must be going on about uh, three or four years at this point. And during non-pandemic times, I use it to some degree with, with all of my clients. If for nothing else, I use it to help demonstrate how tricky our brains are around anxiety. And so one of the things I'll do is I'll, I'll have them face something that isn't their, their presenting trigger. So let's say somebody comes in and they're, they're really phobic of germs. They don't want to touch anything that, that's, that's germy because their brain is screaming they're going to die if they touch it. So I'll put them on top of a skyscraper. So I have a thing where, where you go into an elevator and you go to the top of a skyscraper and the elevator door opens and there's a plank. And it's incredibly realistic. And I'll ask people and I'll say, how, how triggering do you think that'll be? And, and, and they typically say, oh, you know, I don't love heights, but, I, you know, it's not real. I don't, I don't think it's going to do anything. And the elevator opens up. And their heart starts pounding. And then I ask them some questions. I ask them, where are you right now? And they say, I'm on a skyscraper. I'm really scared. I'm about to fall to my death. And I say, no, where are you really right now? And they say, well, I'm in your office. And I say, all right, well, can you feel the carpet with your feet? Yeah. How much do you believe you're in my office right now? 100%. Okay. Well, what happens if you go to try to step off the edge? And they, and they say, I'm terrified I'm going to die. And, and I say, well, how much does your anxiety believe that this is real? And they go, 100%. I cannot take any step forward. And so being able to help people to understand that the brain is just not this one, you know, unitary structure. It's kind of a bundle of structures. And so we can understand something with the top of our brain, our, our logic center. We understand that it's safe. We understand that uh, public speaking, for example, we understand that no one's going to kill us. There's no logical reason for us to be having this fight or flight response. But anxiety doesn't get it. Anxiety is, you know, is just misinterpreting the situation. And you can understand that it's safe, but another part of your brain can equally, if not more, believe that you're in mortal jeopardy when you're, you know, just uh, sitting on an airplane, just having some light turbulence. It's important for people to understand that our anxiety systems mean well. They're never wanting to hurt us. They're never wanting to torment us or to torture us. Our anxiety is our mm. inner bodyguard, but it's incredibly glitchy. It's incredibly kind of out of time in the sense that it thinks we're still living in prehistoric times where all the dangers are, are readily apparent and, and, and immediate and deadly. And so it's so helpful for people to understand that 
it's not them. If you're feeling anxious, you're not broken, you're not defective. It's that our brains are wired to be incredibly glitchy, anxious machines. And so I think the virtual reality is a way for people to understand, well, if my, if my brain can go haywire when I'm just standing in the middle of your office, I get how, you know, getting up to present at a meeting in the workplace, I get now how my brain's just kind of going haywire when I know that I'm fine and my brain is just going into overdrive. I've never tried virtual reality, so it's going to be on my list post-pandemic to find somewhere in the UK where I can just go and have a go because I know that if you put them on me, I'm not particularly worried about heights. But if you did as you described, I would be terrified. I wouldn't be able to walk across your carpet. I'm, I'm absolutely sure. And it's not, you know, there's a lot of virtual reality that you stick your cell phone into into a box and it can give you a little flavor of virtual reality but the the more let's say expensive systems because they are more expensive but but they're still pretty affordable compared to how virtual reality technology used to be but it's the certain type of virtual reality technology that is just kind of light years wow. ahead of others. Now, I've got one more bit of from my research department who've noticed that Wally, your dog, has played a key role during the pandemic for your family. <gasps> Eric is holding up a mug with Wally on it. I'm a big fan of Wally. Hmm. Lovely. Wally's a good dog. And my research department have heard from Wally that he's seeking someone to manage his publicity. And if and if that is the case, I'd really like to apply. So if you could pass that on to Wally, I'd be very grateful. I'll, I'll, let, I'll let him know. Now, Eric, I wonder if you wouldn't mind just sharing a bit more about your background and your career, maybe sharing with us some pivotal moments. Well, let's see. I originally, after undergraduate school, went out into the business world. I know you're you're a business consultant, so you can you can kind of might relate to what I'm going to say. Is I went out into the business world and I went into management. I managed a small office of medical transcriptionists, and just absolutely found it kind of a soul crushing experience for me when. I had to think about what's the bottom line of the company with with my decisions with the with the employees and all I wanted to do was to do something to help them to make their lives better and and I didn't have the the skills uh, or knowledge on how to do that in in my role in in management and so I went back to school and, and got a master's degree. I wasn't sure that I was going to be as committed to go and get a, get a doctorate degree. So I went and got a master's degree and just, just loved it. Just, you know, it's the first time I really felt like I, I found my people. It was kind of the, the, you know, being around the master's students was just like the mothership had, had come home and just loved it. And when I finished that, I realized I'm, I'm just not done. I want more. And I went to Northeastern in Boston and got my PhD. 
and had really just some wonderful training experiences in, in cognitive behavioral therapy. Just, you know, love the idea of doing uh, exposure work with people, being able to help people face their fears and was fortunate enough. I, I found a job afterwards that was looking for an anxiety specialist. And at that time, I didn't know that that was a thing. I didn't know there were anxiety specialists. And so, you know, I, I got the job and just fell in love with that. And that's all I've ever wanted to do ever since. So, you know, this idea that you can take someone with you who is phobic of talking to other people and go with them downtown and and take them into shops and have them talk to to the the, the people that work there or, or other other customers and and to see them kind of learn and grow right then and right there has just been something that really appealed to me much more than kind of more subtle long-term types of, of therapy for, for some other things. So I, I fell in love with that and have devoted my entire career to, to all things anxiety. But, you know, the challenge with CBT is CBT is about symptom reduction. It's about how do we get rid of somebody's fear. And the problem with that is you can't unring a phobia bell. Once someone has a fear, on some level, they're always going to have that fear. Now, it can get much quieter and it can go into remission for long periods of time, maybe even for a lifetime, but it always has this possibility of coming back. And what the research tends to show is with with good treatment, you know, a, a phobic disorder is going to reduce, you know, around 40 percent, which is which is wonderful, but it's not zero. And so that's where ACT comes in and ACT kind of goes in complete opposite direction and ACT says, you know, we're we're not even going to talk. We're not even going to talk about symptom reduction. We're just going to refocus on having the best life that you can. And for kind of that residual anxiety, I think that's a wonderful approach to be able to have some really concrete tools for how do we live a life that is going to be filled with, at times, tremendous amounts of pain. And no amount of cognitive behavioral therapy is going to make someone immune to the pain that's going to come up in life. You know, anyone out there that's lost their job because of COVID, there's a lot of people, I think, where, where we live, two in five people are food insecure right now, which is, which is just a kind of a, a, just a massive amount of people. There's a lot of people who are losing loved ones to, to COVID. And so having a goal that's focused on symptom elimination, I think there's some problem with that because life gets really difficult at times. And there is no turning on the Zen switch and being Zen for the rest of your life. And so ACT has been a profoundly personal and, and career changing um, experience for me. But at the same time, and I'll be curious what, what your thoughts are on that, is I think that sometimes with P 
purely acceptance-based approaches, there can be a little bit of uh, harshness to, to that, that this notion that symptom reduction is just not something that we talk about. I think there's a little element of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And so I think that there is a way to allow for reasonable symptom reduction where you can, but with, with symptoms that certainly are going to remain and pain in life that's going to show up, I think the act is, is wonderful for that. So, so I really like balancing that out most. And I think a part of that was then my next kind of that evolution in my thinking, which was the compassion-focused therapy. And, and for people with compassion-focused sort of approaches, the idea is when we notice suffering in ourselves or in other people, it's to have this sense of wanting to help alleviate that suffering where we can and the compassion-focused approach allows for soothing. They talk in terms of the soothing system. So, you know, if you've read about it, which, which it sounds like you have, there's, there's kind of these, you know, if we think about humans, right? We've been around in one, one form or another for a couple million years. And for almost the entirety of the couple million years we've been around, we've lived in incredibly harsh, dangerous, life or death, daily struggle sort of situations. And then the world changed dramatically over the last 10,000 years. And it's even changed dramatically in my lifetime. So, you know, having grown up with without internet, without social media, without 24-hour news, right? The world is now very different. And the, the compassion-focused therapy people talk in terms of, well, for, for most of this time we've been around, we've had, you know, three real essential drives. We've had this threat system, and that's just that fight or flight. So we have to stay alive right? And so if we have to stay alive, then we have parts of our brain that its job is just to look for threats. And it's always looking for threats. And so any of this notion that, that anxiety is just this pathological thing, it, it really is missing the boat that we humans are anxious animals because we have parts of our brain that's constantly looking for danger not just in the current moment like other animals, but we're searching our past for, oh my God, what if I didn't pass this test that I took last week? Or we're, we're searching for threats in the future that what happens when this podcast plays if, if you know, somehow I'm humiliated or, or whatever, right? That, that this is just the background noise of our brain. So we have the threat system and then we have this thing called the drive system. So not, it's not enough just to stay alive. We also have to go out and accumulate resources if we want to survive as well, right? We, we need to have food. We need to have mating opportunities. And so we have this drive system that prehistorically served us well, but in the modern world can get out of whack to where we keep accumulating resources that we don't need. So you have people who are multi-billionaires 
who can't possibly use those resources, but they can't stop. They're just accumulating more and more and more, and then working to change the laws so that the richest can, can have even more, right? So that's that drive system that we have, which again, we need to a certain degree. We need the threat system to a certain degree. But then there's this third system, this soothing system, and that's you know for our ancestors, after a long day of hunting and gathering and trying to stay alive from all manners of threats, we come back to our caves or our little tribes and we're soothed through this compassionate connection, through this warmth and, 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 and kindness of our people. And that's something that I think that acknowledgement of that soothing system that's built into each and every one of us is something that compassion-focused therapy adds that I think is really, to me, is a game changer. And so I like this idea of we really help to create soothing where we can. And I know certainly some ACT purists will, will disagree with me on that, but I think if we can, if we can have soothing in a way that's adaptive, so not uh, staying home and drinking vodka all day, but soothing through being able to hold our experience gently, do some soothing breathing, and kind of treating our inner experience with compassion rather than a threat. I think it's a wonderful thing, and that's ultimately, that's why I wrote that book, because there's, there's hundreds of really good ACT books out there and hundreds of really good CBT books out there. But to add that soothing element to it. Thank you so much for giving us a flavor of how you arrived at this book, but also how you weave in the different disciplines and combine them to get the, the, the best, most compassionate approach. Because I, I agree, I think... You, you mentioned there's some harshness in acceptance, and I think you're right. And the way we, we already look at that in our workplace training is we put that skill of noticing. We use the matrix quite a lot, the ACT matrix. And at the heart of that, we've adapted it, and we say noticing with curiosity and kindness. Yeah, that's huge. That's huge. That's so important. That's probably the thing we focus on most in the training, that this, this, we're not using this matrix so you can find other ways to be harsh to yourself. This is about being kind. And now having started to immerse myself in compassion-focused therapy, I'm getting other ways, other approaches, reading your book, getting other approaches. And something else you said really struck me. You talked about symptom elimination. And I'm noticing that in bulk in organizations organizations are alarmed and they are saying to me oh gosh everyone's really stressed and anxious ross can you come and make it go away please yeah and i say no but here's what i can do yeah and, it, and it's partly around <laughs> firstly normalizing it partly for me it's talking about how it can fluctuate yeah. on a daily, hourly basis, and then partly starting to share resources with people about how they can relate to their beast, to use your language. So I think, let's go and dive into the book, if that's all right. Well, I was just going to add, you know, don't make it worse than it has to be. 
Right. I mean, there's not an intervention to where suddenly this pandemic is just this wonderful bed of roses. This is a tough situation. It, it absolutely is. And so how do we not make it worse? Right. I mean, we certainly if we if we beat ourselves up and it's, you know, I'm surprised often about how many people call me up for therapy now who are just, you know, they're, they're feeling so anxious these days, but they just are, they, they're just so harsh to themselves about, you know, feeling so anxious in a time where there hasn't been a time that's as normal to be highly anxious in quite some time, right? Just, just worldwide. And so if we can really help them meet this with compassion, then we can help prevent it from being worse than it has to be and soothe it where we can. Hey, supers, that's it in the bag. I'd like to thank Eric for being so generous with his insights and the clarity of his message. Tune in next time to hear loads more about his book. If you like this episode of the podcast, could I invite you to share it with one other person? I'm really keen to spread the behavioral science and skills with more people. Of course, a subscription, rating, or review are also very much appreciated. The show notes are at rossmackintosh.co.uk, and this includes links to a few different platforms. I'd love to hear from you, and you can get in touch at peoplesoup.pod at gmail.com. On Twitter, we are at peoplesouppod. On Instagram, at people.soup. And on Facebook, we are at People's Soup Pod. Thanks to Andy Glenn for his spoon magic, and to Alex Engelberg for his vocals, and to you for listening. Look after yourselves, peace supers, and bye for now. Our anxiety systems mean well. They're never wanting to hurt us. They're never wanting to torment us or to torture us. Our anxiety is our mm. inner bodyguard, but it's incredibly glitchy.